Amen. You may be seated. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. We are the church. I really appreciate uh, Scott and Sarah and Addie and Mark and Terry and just the way that they work uh, week in and week out, providing us with quality um, music and worship, and I just really appreciate them this morning. I am Jordan Dirsch, and I'm in Under Shepherds, and I've uh, been here for over a year now. It's just been a, such a privilege to be at Grace, and I'm really excited to open the Word this morning. We're going to be in Acts 2, so you can grab your copy of God's Word and turn there. And our, our sermon title is A Devoted Church, A Devoted Church. And this morning, um, I want to just present something for everyone and just to what, what a church looks like. Um, This morning, just by way of introduction, I'm convinced that all people everywhere are seeking fulfillment in various ways. But most often, I believe that human nature is to seek acceptance by other people or groups of people. Humans strive for communal acceptance. Perhaps it looks like a hunting club. Perhaps that acceptance looks like a a military organization or a mom's group, right? Anybody like those mom's group? Or a job or your work group at your job. A fitness or athletic group. There's so many different groups. Could be a fine arts group, a school extracurricular organization, a music group, a social group, or basically anything that you like doing, you find a group of people that like doing it too. And these communal groups are something that people are drawn to. And oftentimes they feel as though they are part of something bigger than themselves. That's kind of what I picture. And it is fulfilling to some extent. And not only is it fulfilling, but it's motivating to live life. But on the other side of this, we have often seen others who have been excluded from such groups. And maybe we ourselves have been excluded as well. Something that we wanted to be participating in, we weren't able to. We took interest in it, but it didn't take interest in us. Either way, whether in or out of these groups of people, I am convinced and convicted that all people are left wanting, striving, and desiring something so much more satisfying and fulfilling. And I believe that is found in the church. You see, there are three institutions or groups of people that were established by God. The first is the family. God established the family in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The second institution is the government. And God established a government for his people and for all the peoples of the earth to reward good and to punish evil. And now what is the third institution? Well, the third institution is the church. Most specifically, his church. God's church is made up of all the redeemed people since the founding of the church, the day of Pentecost. And God's church is a living organism that exists to make disciples in order that the triune God might be glorified and receive the glory due his name. However, the church is not just universal in nature, but also includes individual, autonomous, local bodies of believers. Believers meet for community and instruction in the word of God. You are here for just that. And you recognize and you know that you are in need of this community because you cannot make it in this spiritual life alone. Now, with all that being said, there are a lot of misconceptions, even today in our culture, in American culture especially, of what the church is and then what the church is to do. So today, I hope to clear up some of those. And as we look at this various early conception 
of the church in Acts 2. I pray that you will have that perspective as we embark on this study. So please, let us read Acts 2, beginning in verse 37 down through verse 42. Luke, he writes this, he says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And what did those 3,000 souls do? Verse 42, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we see here right in front of us the conception of your church at Pentecost. And God, it provides for us a paradigm of how we ought to live and how we ought to operate and what our priorities should be as your church. And so Lord, now in this time, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would speak through me and that it would be your words, not man's. And Lord, that you would work in our people to create us to be the church that you want us to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so we see right here the beginning of the church, the beginning of their conversion, and they were changed and they acted immediately. There was no hesitancy. Peter was preaching the gospel right there at Pentecost, and he was preaching a gospel of repentance and faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And sinners were being drawn to that power and the the working of the Holy Spirit. And they were being drawn to salvation. The Holy Spirit then gave them the gift of salvation and they received that gift of the Holy Spirit. See, uh, amazing things were happening here. You know, you have 3,000 souls instantly transformed. Amazing. The first megachurch, you could say. And right here, this, this church is now without leaders. Like, what are they to do? Who are they to be? What is their plan? What what does it look like to operate as the church? And the question was, why? What, what was changing? What had happened? What was this new institution that God had put in motion? And how do we understand this for today? Well, I propose to you, here's our big idea, the main idea for today. Authentic Christians as the church are devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the ordinances, and to prayer. Authentic Christians, as the church, are devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the ordinances, and to prayer. Said differently, the church is ordained by God and organized by men to learn from God's inspired word, to fellowship with one another in Christian community, to exercise the ordinances of baptism and communion, and to encourage one another in personal and corporate prayer, all to the praise of his glory and grace. So that's where we're going today. And before we get there, I want to answer a few other questions. Who makes up the church? Well, the church, notice that it is all those who are redeemed in this present age. 
That is, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are immediately placed into the spiritual body of Christ. Just because you come to church does not make you a Christian. Let me say that again. Just because you come to church does not make you a Christian. You are a Christian based solely on the grace of God because he redeems you and purchases you. And then you are part of his universal church. But be warned, this is a mixed multitude. There are those who come to church who don't truly know the loving Savior. So there's an important another aspect And that is, the church is distinct from Israel. And this is something that was not revealed until this present age. You can see that in Ephesians 3. So the church is not made up of Israel, nor is Israel made up of the church. They are mutually exclusive. And I'm speaking of ethnic Israel. And these two groups, they do make up God's redeemed. And they will make up his worshipers for eternity. And in a real sense, they are God's chosen and redeemed. But they are distinct here on earth. A few more questions that should be answered. Where did the church begin? Well, it began at Pentecost, as we just read. This is the foundation of the church here in Acts 2. And so the original establishment of the church is right here. It is when the Holy Spirit came, not to just influence, not to just fill temporarily, but to indwell God's people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. Now there's a new age where the Holy Spirit fills and indwells his people to be used by him. And finally, when will the church end? Well, it will end at the second coming of Christ. When all of his redeemed will be taken away, and I believe at the rapture, the dead will be raised imperishable and taken on to immortality. And the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are alive will be caught up with him. Blessed be the name of the Lord to be with him forever. Okay, so just a few preliminary questions that we've answered. Now let's understand from the text our first point today. The church is ordained by God and organized by men to learn from God's inspired word. We see this right here in verse 42. It says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, they desired what the apostles had taught. In other words, one way that the church glorifies God is by building itself up in the faith through the instruction of his inspired word. Believers should devote themselves to sound biblical teaching from the word of God. So a church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, these people that are new, that have been given new hearts, are now to take action to invest in themselves spiritually. The newly saved took action. And this is what he means when he says they devoted themselves. This is an active tense. It is continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So, not only did they do this individually, but they did it corporately. They did not just stay together as individuals, but they went to others in the community to share of this good news. They were devoted to Scripture. And there's so many texts, but one I'd like to turn you to is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this, says, and all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, there's a progression there. There's a progression. It is one of 
spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God has breathed his word, has breathed and he has inspired his word. And it's for four things, for teaching, to tell you what the right way is, for reproof, to tell you what the wrong way is and how to be corrected to get back on the right way. And then for training, how to stay on the right path. You see, God's word is given to us so that we can grow from spiritual infancy to adulthood. And this is a long and gradual process that takes a lot of work. And the first early church, they were committed to to devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were babies, and they recognized that they needed to be fed. So these infants, they took to the milk, they took to the meat in order to grow strong in their faith. And likewise, the church is constantly growing because it is living. The church is not to remain static and complacent, but is to grow both in depth, depth and in width. So how are we to grow if we are not fed? Are you being fed? That is part of the role of the church. Yes, we are fed through the church, but we must also learn to feed ourselves through our diligently, diligent study of God's word. The church and the believer work in tandem with one another to become more Christ-like. The believer should never become so reliant upon the church and the pastors and those in leadership that he or she never reads the scripture for herself or himself. Nor should he or she be so independent from the church that he or she never attends the assembly and never benefits from the fellowship and the teaching of the church. So as Christians, our goal should be to learn from the word of God, learning from it and applying it to our lives so that way we can grow. And this is done in the context of the local church and in the context of our personal devotional lives. So my question is, are you like the early church? Are you devoted to God and his word? Believers should devote themselves themselves in submission to the authority of the church's leadership. The elders and the pastors have the spiritual authority within the church, but one might ask, Where do they get this authority from? Where does the authority of a pastor come from? Well, it is appointed by God and his sovereign hand. You see, within the church, there are two offices, that of elder, pastor, overseer, and that of deacon. The first is biblically assigned under Christ and over the assembly are those elders. Elders are males within the church. And last week, Pastor Dom did a great job explaining this. They are also called Bishops, pastors, and teachers. These are all used synonymously across the Old, uh, New Testament. And the other office is that of deacon. Both elders and deacons must meet the biblical qualifications. Elders are to instruct and teach, and deacons are primarily concerned with serving and carrying out the functional tasks of the church. And these leaders are to operate under Christ's church as servants of Christ, and therefore have his authority and directing the affairs of the church. And the congregation is to submit to their leadership, knowing that Christ has appointed them. And Hebrews 13, 7 has much to say of that. In America, we have a commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. We typically understand the idea of commander-in-chief in a governmental sense. 
but we can also use it here in an illustrative sense. God is the commander in chief. He is the commander of chief of every single citizen in his economy, every one of us. And guess what? Those who do submit and those who don't submit, he is the commander in chief. Within the government, everything runs from the top down. We could say that God is the commander and the pastors, in a sense, are his generals. In the church, there is one at the top, and that is, of course, Jesus. He commands all of his soldiers, including the generals, to fulfill his mission. The generals are appointed and called by God to take a part of the spiritual responsibility of shepherding the sheep and instructing the soldiers. The main difference between a general and a pastor is, listen, the pastor is not a professional Christian. He is a servant to his people, a true leader that shows his leadership through his servant spirit. And the church body makes up all of those individual soldiers, and the soldiers have an important part in that army. And that is to obey the Lord's commands and fulfill his tasks. In the Lord's army, it is to keep his commandments. And the good soldier does this consistently and most importantly, out of love for his commander. I remember speaking with a Native American soldier about a year ago and growing up, I think, in one of the, on one of the reservations out west, I guess we are out west, back east, he, he told me, he said, you know, You've probably heard of the idea of being on the bottom of the totem pole. I said, yeah, I've heard that. It's like basically saying that you're less than everyone. He said, no, that's, that's actually an offense to us because that is a position of honor. I said, how so? He said, because the bottom of the totem pole supports the rest of the tribe. So too must the church leaders lead through humble, sacrificial service to support the rest of the church. Are you a good soldier? Are you a submissive follower? Do you obey the commander of the army, that is the Lord, and the generals, the pastors, who he has appointed over you? Think about our high school students and our college students, our DLI students, those young adults. Do you know your pastors? Do you know your leaders? Do you find joy in coming to church and learning from them? Whatever age, whatever Gender, whatever, wherever you're at, God has appointed these leaders over you. So if you are a good soldier, my, my encouragement to you is to continue being a good soldier. If you are a disobedient soldier, I pray that you would turn away from that disobedience, submit to the Lord and those who he has placed over you. If you are not even in the fight, if you are here and you are confused, you're like, I'm not part of this army. I implore you, I beg you to be saved and to consider which side am I on? Am I on the Lord's side? Once you figure that out, consider what is the task that you are to accomplish? If you are a Christian, it is to make disciples. So this morning we've seen that the church is ordained by God and organized by men to learn from God's inspired word. And secondly, we see that the, the church is here to fellowship with one another in Christian community, Christian community fellowship. In other words, one way that the church glorifies God is through fellowship and personal discipleship within the body. You see this right here in Acts chapter 2. Look in verse 42. It says, 
and to teaching and to the fellowship, right there in the middle. What is this idea of fellowship? What is this community? Well, it comes from the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. And it's one that Paul often employed, but here it appears um, only here in all of Luke and Acts. So this is the one time that Luke, the author, uses this word. And its basic meaning is in association, in communion, in close relationship. Millard Erickson, an author, he states, the New Testament speaks of koinonia, literally a having or holding all things in common. In our fellowship with believers, we have all things in common because we have what most matters in common. To understand this is to look at a few metaphors in Scripture. Just think of the church as the bride of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 5. Christ is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head of his wife. The bride and the bridegroom in a marital relationship share a very intimate bond. In many ways, the relationship between Christ and the church is the same. You can see this more in Ephesians 5. We won't turn there, but the essence of it is that Christ gave himself up for the bride. The church is an incredibly unique organism designed by Christ and made up of all born-again believers in this present age. So when you think of an organism of the church, what do you think of? When I think of organism, I think of the human body. You could also think of a building. Listen, both of these are scriptural metaphors that God uses. The body must have all the parts working in accordance with each other to accomplish its purpose. Just as a building won't last without a foundation and a body won't survive without its head, so too the church must have Christ as its foundation and its head. Every physical body only has one head. And every building only has one foundation. A church body without Christ as its head and the foundation is truly no church at all. How many times do you lay a foundation? One time. You only lay one foundation and it was laid at the cross through his, and through his resurrection. Christ laid the foundation for our entire faith. There's nothing we can add to that. It is complete. You see a a building without a roof, and you think, wow, that's incomplete, right? You see an athlete who sprains an ankle, can't, can't compete anymore. This will greatly affect the functionality of the church, or of the athlete, and of the building. And I think some people in popular Christianity, kind of had this idea of like, hey, it's me and Jesus, right? And we're going to make stuff happen. It's, they got this lone ranger mentality, like I, it's between me and God. You know, we go out in the woods together and I spend time with him. You know, I don't really need the church, okay? I think that's really popular in, in this area, okay? Frankly, I've talked to a lot of people that said, no, I don't need that. I've got my own spirituality with God. All right, hold on. This kind of lone ranger mentality, listen, The lone ranger is a dead ranger. The people who survive are those who stick together. There is no such thing as a successful team that is made up of one individual. When you look at just any team, there is a collective effort. There is a group of people, basketball, football, soccer, NASCAR. 
Even NASCAR, people think, oh, it's just the driver. No, he's got the pit crew, right? There is always a team. And this is much like fellowship within the body. The idea of fellowship is an important one. That koinonia, this does not simply mean sitting around and eating donuts, although I like donuts, and talking about the football game that's happening in 30 minutes with San Francisco and Philadelphia, okay? That is not the essence of fellowship. Now, while fellowship might include that, it is not the essence of it. It is not the essence of it. One Puritan preacher, he said it this way, George Swinnock, he said, woe to him that is alone. David was alone when Satan drew him to defile his neighbor's wife. While the sheep flock together, they are safe as being under the shepherd's eye. But if one straggle from the rest, it is quickly a prey to the ravenous wolf. It is no hard matter to rob that house that God, I'm sorry, that stands far from neighbors. The cruel pirate Satan watches for those vessels that sail away without a convoy. So this Lone Ranger idea of Christianity is just simply unbiblical. Fellowship is an essential means of grace. Theologian Wayne Grudem, he says it this way. He says, we should not neglect ordinary Christian fellowship as a valuable means of grace within the church. It would be healthy for Christians to recognize that a measure of God's grace is experienced when Christians talk together and eat together, when they have times of work and play together, enjoying one another's fellowship. See, this can be ordinary time with one another or simply conversations concerning spiritual things. So when we operate in conjunction with one another as a body, as a building, we operate as a family that looks out for each other and has true fellowship that includes both spiritual discipline, church discipline, and spiritual accountability. I think of 1 John 1, 3, it says this, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The same word, koinonia, the same word is used here, fellowship with us, and indeed that fellowship, that koinonia, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So my encouragement to you is, do not be a lone ranger. Don't be a solo player. Make sure you make frequent stops at the pit stop, your Christian community. If you don't get adjusted, if you don't get helped, if you don't have that accountability through the Christian community, through the church, you could very quickly slip and fall into spiritual bankruptcy. So believers should devote themselves to fellowship and to discipleship with one another. This is of great importance, this idea of fellowship this idea of discipleship. This includes the mutual accountability of all believers to one another. We see this idea worked out in Matthew 18 with church discipline. This accountability necessitates the need for discipline for sinning members of the congregation. Churches should endeavor to cooperate with other local churches for the presentation and propagation of the faith. The pastors in any church should be the judges of the measure and method of that participation with other churches. Again, because we want to guard the doctrine of our flock. It has been said before that the devil works best in isolation and Christ works best through community. 
Think about any team. Think about any job or occupation. Think about a football team or a fire department or the human body. The quarterback needs the offensive line. The hose holder for the fire department needs the truck driver. And the hands need the arms. We cannot survive without the other parts of the church. You will protect those within your flock and those outside of the flock when necessary. I like this quote from David Clarkson. He says this, you would count him unworthy of the name of friend who knowing a thief or an incendiary to lurk in your family with a design to kill or rob or burn your house would conceal it from you and not acquaint you with it on his own accord. There is no such thief, murderer, incendiary as sin. Silence or concealment in this case is treachery. He is the most faithful friend, the worthy and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. He that is reserved in this case is but a false friend, a mere pretender to love. What's the takeaway? If you are truly seeking what's best for your brother and sister in Christ, you will in love confront them of their sin. A false friend would continue to let you go on your your way, continuing in sin. So we must have this desire, this, this striving to be a body that takes care of itself. You are on a team, not a solo player. You should use your talents, those gifts, to serve the king and his everlasting kingdom. Don't worry and concern yourself so much with the here and now. Focus on the there and then. Seek accountability. Seek that spiritual transformation through that genuine fellowship. Erickson also said, he said, the body is characterized by genuine fellowship just as our human body works together or our team operates in conjunction. So does the body of Christ. So I want you to think about this. How are you doing? Are you connected to the body? Are you connected in fellowship? Are you using your gifts to help the body? Some people are like, I don't know what my gift is. What do you enjoy doing? Do it for God. Do it for the church. Could you use that in service to the Lord? That is part of what makes you a healthy member of the body. You are actively seeking out ways to serve Christ and serve his church. So we've looked over two points that we are here to learn from God's inspired word and to fellowship with one another in Christian community. Our third point this morning is the church is to practice the ordinances of communion and baptism. To practice the ordinances of communion and baptism. In other words, we, the church, glorify God through the administration and observances of the ordinances. And we do this. We do this at Grace. We've seen Veronica baptized just a few weeks ago. We practice communion twice a month. This is critical and important means of grace. The Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes and should always be preceded by serious self-examination. The elements of communion and bread, okay, the bread and the wine, are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, okay? Nonetheless, the Lord's Supper 
is a true and real communion with the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he is spiritually present with all of us as his people. In the Lord's Supper, we picture Christ. We picture his body broken and his blood spilled. I like what John MacArthur says. He says this, the gospel is presently, is presented through the service of communion and as the elements are explained. They point to the physical incarnation, sacrificial death, resurrection, and coming kingdom. You see, there is such incredible symbolism here. And it is a consistent reminder that we constantly do to reflect upon our lives and our submission to the Lord. It is to remember him. It is a memorial to look back at what Christ has done and to solemnly evaluate our lives in relation to it. How am I in my life measuring up to what Christ has done? And when you take the elements, do you think of how incredibly important that is? Do you think about the gravity of the symbolism and the meaning of the table? Do you think about the blood that flowed from your Savior's veins? If you don't, I would consider you to, con- to think about that the next time that we partake. Every time we take the Lord's table, it is an opportunity to think back on his sacrifice on the cross and his body crushed. His sacrifice was the essence of love for us and for the world. Secondly, the Christian, for the Christian, baptism is an outward representation of an inward transformation. That outward representation is a symbol. And the inward transformation, of course, is regeneration. It is salvation. Christian baptism has one mode, and that is of immersion. Look in Acts 8. I have it on the screen. It says this, And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And when they went down into the water, Philip said to the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Here there's clearly a body of water that they went down into. It is by immersion. And baptism is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. That's why when I baptize, I say, buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the power of his resurrection. It is a symbol of his work. It is also a sign of the fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ. And through persecution, the church there in Acts that we are speaking of was going through so much persecution. They recognized that if they were to do this, it was associating distinctly with the New Testament church, with the church of Jesus. And it was risky. Baptism is a picture of regeneration It's a picture of the life of Christ, his death and his resurrection. So because we have been buried with Christ and also united with Christ, now we live with Christ. We have his Holy Spirit as a seal of our redemption. Death no longer has dominion over him or over us. You know, I think about this church 
the remodeling that's happened, beautiful building, it's all great. But it only truly, truly matters if we are alive people. And I thank God that we are alive in Christ. We could have the most beautiful church and we could still be dead. And pray it never will be that case because I believe that this church is alive, that we are alive in Christ. And that is the picture of regeneration that we get in baptism. So the church, the church is ordained by God and organized by men to learn from God's inspired word, to fellowship with one another in Christian community, to exercise the ordinances of baptism and communion. And fourth and finally, we see that the church is to encourage one another in corporate and personal prayer. Corporate and personal prayer. You know, I think that this, this is one of my favorite ones. The church, we are to be a praying people. Another way that we glorify God is to praise him, to pray to him personally and collectively. Prayers of adoration, of thanksgiving, of confession, of supplication. Believers should be devoted to this as a church devoted to prayer. The idea of personal prayer is seen all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. We see this in the Psalms especially. However, personal prayer can stay personal in the sense that it is intimate and that it can be to the groups, to ears of two or three, or even more people who are devoted to one another's growth and discipleship. Prayer can be understood in multiple ways. To pray for, to pray to, to ask. There's a lot of different ways, a petitionary prayer, an imprecatory prayer. There's so many different prayers. Listen, here's, here's, the, here's the idea. If you want God to know about it, talk to him. If you think he needs to know something, talk to him. And the word of God says, pray continually, pray without ceasing, right? He wants to know everything. He wants to know it all. Pictured in James 5, 16, it reads this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And the idea here is of mutual accountability for the sake of spiritual growth and encouragement. The essential ingredient here in this context is prayer. Prayer is the essence of this conversation in regards to a humble and loving spirit that will work toward the sanctification of not just oneself, but of others as well. So any conversation, any difficult conversation should be bathed in prayer. And those happen, don't they? When we have to have one of those kind of, you know, hard conversations, or we're even contemplating whether or not we should have that hard conversation, it should be bathed in prayer so that we can mutually build each other up as the body. Matthew 18, 20, it says, For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. And of course, the context here is that of church discipline, the proper formulation for church discipline is to go to the offender first by yourself. If you are rejected at that point, then you take one or other two witnesses with you. And if this person persists in their sin, then you take it to the church. After that, all you have done and you have tried and you have labored to, for them to be reconciled to the body, then he, is to, he or she is to be treated as an unbeliever. 
It is important that all of this be done in love with the goal of restoration. And this should happen consistently. And ideally, every single time, the first step is where we see the fruit and the change. But that's not always the case. But regardless, we are to obey what our Lord says. We are to minister to each other. So my question for you is, are you devoted to ministering to others through personal discipleship bathed in prayer? Let's think about our mothers. Do you have other moms that you can be transparent with, that you are praying with, that you endure long time in prayer for their sanctification and for their children's salvation? Do you have someone to go to in your parenting struggles? Think of our youth. Do you have somebody, a mentor that you can look to, that you can ask them to pray for you, to help you, to assist you, to keep you accountable in some area of struggle? Whatever situation you find yourself in, there is prayer needed for you. And there is somebody who is willing to, to do those prayers for you. And sometimes we just have to let them know, I need your prayers. If you do not have someone that you can talk to, that you can be transparent with, that you can build that relationship with, if you are just trying to do it on your own power and strength as a lone ranger, I'd encourage you, stop doing that. God designed us to be here for each other. And attempting to walk the Christian life by yourself is like walking a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. Don't, don't do it. We need each other. So believers, we should be devoted to corporate prayer for the spiritual health of the church. Corporate prayer consists of, yes, verbal prayers as we, as we have experienced today, but also they can consist of corporate praise that is proclaimed as part of the whole assembly. And this is where I get excited. These praises are lifted up to the heavens in exuberant joy and gratefulness. And this is the express idea that we see in two texts, especially Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Let's examine Ephesians 5.19 first. Look at this text. It says to us, Paul writes, he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So there's a dual aspect here. There's a dual aspect. It is that both of speaking to one another, right? That mutual edification. And then there is singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And what strikes me is that the heart right there is singular. He's talking about our one heart to the Lord. So there is this dimension where we are ministering to one another and we are praying to the Lord together every time we come together to sing. Did you realize that? All of our praises are prayers. Peter O'Brien, a commentator, he says this, if drunkenness leads to dissolute behavior, then spirit-filled Christians whose lives are characterized by singing, thanksgiving, and submission present a very different picture. These divinely inspired expressions of joy and gratitude are reminiscent of the opening doxology where Christians are encouraged to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now those who are being filled by God's Spirit are able to join the apostle in offering appropriate praise to the triune God for all that he has done in Christ. 
You can't help but let this out. The idea here is that a spirit-filled life of a believer will inevitably lead to corporate praise. So if that's the case, how can you say you don't need to be part of the corporate body? The believer can't help but be part of the body because that is where he is able to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and to uplift his brother and sister in Christ. You see, we are not only singing praises to God, but we also testify of our praise to our fellow brothers and sisters within the church. And this is to sing our praises to Jesus. Colossians 3.16, our next text, it says this, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. You see, when the word of Christ dwells within you richly, we cannot help but burst out in psalm and singing and spiritual songs and hymns. That is the only proper response to all the gifts of God's grace that he has given to us. When we have his power inside of us, we desire to let it flow out of us. So what do you do with the gifts of God and his grace? Do you praise and bless and thank him in exuberant psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? I pray that you do. You see, the church, the church is ordained by God and organized by men to learn from God's inspired word, to fellowship with one another in Christian community, to exercise the ordinances of baptism and communion, and to encourage one another in personal and corporate prayer. When it comes to what the church is to do, it's relatively simple. We see this in Matthew 28, it is to make disciples. Why must we make disciples? Well, it's because God is seeking worshipers. John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. It could be stated discipleship exists because worshipers don't. You see, God is seeking to make his name great. And how exactly does he accomplish this? Well, it's through the church. Christ said very clearly, I will build my church. Thus, we, we are part of that and we are called to make disciples. That is the mission of the church. That is the mission of this church. Here, it is to glorify God by magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, ministering to his church and multiplying his disciples. That's our purpose. So when we share the gospel, the good news, the good news that Jesus came to earth, completely God and completely man, lived sinlessly with, with absolute perfection, died substitutionally in our place on the cross for all who repent and believe in him by his grace, placing our faith in him, we understand that he secured our salvation. And because of that, we are placed within his church. Why did he do that? All to the praise of his glory. Our mission as the church is to communicate this, to communicate this with the world so that God might be glorified above all. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, this morning, from your word, we have learned what you desire of us. And God, we could, we could come in here and we could play games and have fun and do all these things that the world does. And Lord, it would be nothing if you weren't here. 
The only reason that we have purpose is you. Lord, may you continually draw our hearts to be united as one body under our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. May we represent you well and live for you each and every day. In Christ's holy, precious name, amen.